From Cafe, welcome to Cafe Insider. I'm Preet Bharara. And I'm Ann Milgram. How are you, Anne? Good morning. Wonder what we're going to talk about today. Mm, I think it's going to be an <laughs> impeachment week. I guess. I guess. So. Before we get to that, can I make a one personal announcement? Of course. My book is out in paperback. Oh, congratulations! As of this morning, doing justice. Yeah. So pretty exciting. Everyone get one. Yeah. It'll help me send my kids to college. The other issue that I don't want to spend more than a minute on, but lots of folks are talking about it: the royal family. Yes. What do yeah. you make of this? So it's funny, it's hard not to see the news about the royal family. It's everywhere. And one of our colleagues at NYU, Melissa Murray, who's an awesome host of Strict Scrutiny, a podcast about the Supreme Court, tweets a lot about it. So I have to be honest and admit that almost all my royal family news comes through Professor Melissa Murray. (laughs) But, you know, I'm not that interested in it. But I also, I mean, I feel some sadness for them. And I don't don't really have much much of an opinion other than to sort of feel like in some ways they seem like a normal, they're obviously not normal, but a young couple trying to, you know, have a family and a life. And obviously they have every advantage in some ways, but a lot of disadvantages. But I haven't followed it as closely as I think a lot of people have. Right. I don't know if you know this about me, but some years ago, I also stepped back from my royal duties. <laughs> you did? <laughs> yeah. You know, the paparazzi was getting to be too you much. Don't want me to call I, I don't mean to make his, light. Ro- his royal highness. I find the whole thing, and I have lots of good friends who are fascinated by the royals, but the idea that in 2020, you have a queen and you have all this skirmishing about who gets to keep the hundreds of millions of dollars and who pays for what. You know, people want to be in the royal family, great. If they want to leave, great. They want to live in Canada, great. Like, who otherwise yeah, cares? cares? You know, leave the, them alone. The one thing I will note is the dollar signs are pretty unbelievable. I haven't followed it that closely, but it's a lot of money that the people of Great Britain paid to the royal family and that they, you know, the $3 million cost to renovate a, a house. It's a little head spinning, actually. Seemingly unbegrudgingly. Yeah. Which I don't, I yeah, don't fully I, follow. Maybe yeah. they'll do a podcast. I don't think it's totally unbegrudgingly because there is this tension of the, there are plenty of people who've come out and said, I don't support the royal family, but I support them personally. I wish them well. Anyway. Anyway, that was a little diversion from let's, the, let's get back to the mess that is American government politics. Yeah. So we are recording this in the morning of January 21st. As the trial, I guess, is officially underway today at 1 p.m. Yes. You guys will be listening to this some hours after the trial begins. And so I guess there's a lot of things to talk about. Some things are uncertain. What do we expect? I guess the first news that we can address since the last time we got together was the teams. So you have the House managers, and I think you predicted correctly it would be a diverse group. I think it's great that we don't have as many as the Clinton impeachment trial had. That was 13. This is seven. Yes. I think four men, three women from different parts of the country. A lot of strong law enforcement and national security background. And litigation And litigation lawyers. Uh, Nancy Pelosi stressed the litigation experience of each of these people. So they're really professional and not everyone may like them politically, but it's a pretty solid group. I think it's no surprise to us that Adam Schiff is the head manager. As it should be. I mean, he knows the facts the best. He did a very good job shepherding the intelligence committee process and... It really one person who has the deepest knowledge of the information. It's very helpful to have him as the leader, I think. The one disappointment maybe that you and I might have, I have it a little bit, and I, I, I guess you might, is that there was no outreach to Justin Amash, yeah. the former Republican, now independent member of the House. I thought he would have been an excellent manager. I would have put him on. Do you think it was a missed opportunity? I do think it's a missed opportunity, in part because I think he has been very strong on this. He's been very fact-based. And there's a certain level of credibility that he would bring. And maybe there was some question as to whether he would follow the lead from Schiff and, or be part of the team. But I think that value he would have brought would outweigh any questions or concerns. What do you think? I have the same view. I think that Nancy Pelosi was playing a little bit safe and thought, well, I can't fully control every argument. We want to have a tight message. 
I also think it was a missed opportunity. I think it would have been interesting. Do you think there's any possibility that they reached out to him and he said no? Well, the reporting I saw yeah. was that they did not reach out and he didn't get a phone call. I don't know if that's true or not, but that wouldn't be unsurprising. So I think what's more interesting is the president's team. Yes. So there are three divisions of the president's team. One. Maybe four. Maybe well, four. Well, let's count as we go. Uh, okay. So category one of the president's team is the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone. Who's and, a longtime civil litigator. And deputies that he might have. He's a plaintiff. Let's stop on him just for yeah. one second. Plaintiff side lawyer. He sued a lot of companies over the course of time. He spent a lot of time in the courtroom. University of Chicago law grad, smart guy. I think deeply partisan. We'll talk about him in a minute, but an experienced trial lawyer. As we were walking into the studio this morning, there was news... Does it come over the transom? Is there still a transom? <laughs> the news came over the transom, man. That um, the wire. That House Democrats yeah. are, the, I guess, the House managers are suggesting that Pat Cipollone should recuse himself and not be involved because he is a fact witness. He certainly has some personal knowledge of the things that went on here. Yeah, look, Tribe also. I think I think it was Lawrence Tribe, and if it it wasn't, I apologize to him for giving him credit for this, but. There was a very interesting argument that's been made, which is the White House counsel doesn't represent the president of the United States. Personally, it represents the office of the presidency. And so it's inappropriate to use all these public funds to support the president. Now, that being said, there's an argument that a lot of this does touch on. The president's arguing, and we'll get to this in a minute, but the president's arguing this is within his official authority to do this, to basically pressure Ukraine. And so there is an argument there, but it is still raises a question of, should the White House counsel be the lead lawyer in the impeachment? And you're right. He is a witness because he's advised people, and that wouldn't be privileged because, again, he represents the office of the presidency. Right. No chance that he's going to actually recuse. No, no chance that Not gonna happen. through some legal request they're going to be able to remove him. But it's another example of a way, and you'll see a lot of this in the coming days, of the pro-impeachment folks trying to make the point that there was unfairness in the process. Yeah, exactly. And to show the bias in the process. And I I think that's really important. So I agree with you, they won't succeed, but it's worth calling out um, what's happening. And we're going to talk more about, I think, be explicit about what is happening. But yeah, that's a great example. So that's category one, White House counsel and his deputies. Then category two are these outside lawyers who the president announced a few days ago. Some of them, no real surprise, Jay Sekulow, not a surprise. He's been representing the president both on television and in court and with the special counsel for a period of time. And a long-time conservative lawyer. Long-time conservative lawyer. Then you have people like Alan Dershowitz, Pam Bondi, the former attorney general of Florida, Ken Starr, and others. We have a question from a listener. Dear Preet Bharara and Ann Milgram, what are your thoughts on Ken Starr and Alan Dershowitz joining Trump's legal team? Hashtag Ask Preet, hashtag Cafe Insider. Ken Starr, of course, was the lead of the, was the independent counsel on Whitewater and the Clinton impeachment. And so he obviously has a lot of experience with these matters. I think he also raises a ton of issues in addition to the fact that he was fired from being the president of Baylor University related to mishandling sexual harassment claims. But he, it's very interesting, you know, there were witnesses at the Clinton impeachment trial. Like there are a lot of things here that will be different than were in Clinton impeachment. So his value, I think, is going to be, he's going to try to sort of shoehorn a lot of his experience, I think, into arguing sort of why this doesn't rise to the level of impeachable conduct. But it's a little bit of a strange thing. It's weird, right? Yeah. So and the president to me, has criticized him previously. Yeah, he said he's nuts, yes. I think. Um, I, and those videos keep circulating. It seems to me that what the president has decided is what he always seems to go with, and that is entertainment yes. and interest and ratings, even for his own trial, when I think it probably would be better for him and his presidency to have these proceedings be as boring as possible, 
with competent but boring lawyers so that people don't tune in and they move on past it. He can't and, abide and, that. And also that people think it's fair. Right. I think that yeah. there's there's something about doing the quiet professional defense that basically tries to make the case. They're not doing that. Yeah. But yawn, there's some, yes. Yawn and move on. But he can't do that. He can't do it. Because he wants people who are good on TV. You know what I thought was going to happen? I don't even think Ken Starr is that good on TV. That's just me speaking. But here's no, what not. he is. But he's he's recognizable. Yes. Exactly. Yes. And there's a certain group of people who will look at him and say, he knows what he's talking about. He did the Clinton impeachment. He's someone we can trust in, in his view. And that's what the president is going for. It also seems that, like all things with this president in politics as well, he doesn't have a lot of interest in trying to persuade people sitting on the fence or people who are on the other side. Say, so, oh, you know what? I thought there was something to this impeachment thing. Now I don't think that anymore because these folks are so polarizing and polemical that a lot of people, whether it's right or wrong, will immediately reject anything that comes out of Ken Starr's mouth because they have strong feelings about how hard he went after Clinton. And as you say, interviewed receptionists, you know, the best friend of Monica Lewinsky, all sorts of people. And, and for this person to then be on a team that's arguing you don't need to hear from anyone is just annoying to a lot of people. Yeah, look, and he successfully strong-armed witnesses to testify and to cooperate. One difference that they will argue is that the independent counsel was a creature of the Department of Justice and the House is a political body. And we're going to talk about one reason why I think that the House resolution is so problematic because it's clear that the Republicans are pushing back the House as the lead, as the lead investigators. So Starr's experience is different in some ways, but let's be clear that he left no stone unturned. President Clinton was compelled to testify, right, Like, and actually didn't go into the grand jury. They did it in the White House. We've talked about this, but still, the level of evidence and the level of cooperation he insisted on is completely different than what we've seen here from the president. What you said reminds me of a joke Bill Maher made on his last show on Friday referring to Mitch McConnell. He said, Mitch McConnell, leave no stone turned. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little bit of a different yes. attitude yes. and approach this time around. So... Should we talk about Alan Dershowitz for a minute? Yes, yes. So Alan Dershowitz, fascinating figure who, when it was first announced that he was going to be representing the president, went out of his way to say, well, I'm not really on the legal team. Yes, His on name the is on the brief. Yes. He said, I'm but only obviously he's on the, the constitutional legal team. Yep. And he keeps insisting that he's a liberal Democrat and he didn't vote for Donald Trump. And he's arguing I'm a so particular that constitutional argument, by the way. question. The, I didn't vote for Donald Trump, so you should listen to me. Well, I mean, I, that may be compelling to some people. So he can distance himself from the argument that he's just... You the know, president's like advocate. Jay Sekulow, yeah. he's someone different, or like some of these House people. But the bizarre thing about it is, well, let's take one step back. You and I will be having these arguments and discussions about things that the lawyers said before. Ordinarily, it doesn't matter. And in any trial, the fact that you used to be a prosecutor and you took a particular point of view on a statute, and then you become a defense lawyer and you take a different point of view, no one can stand up in court and say, well, Ann Milgram is full of shit. Right. Because she said the opposite. In a that real be, court. In a real right. court. That would be inadmissible. It's not relevant. It's inappropriate. As the judges always say to the jury, what the lawyers say is not evidence. What the lawyers do is they adduce evidence, develop the evidence, ask questions, and maybe introduce documents and make arguments. That's here, not the that's case different here. Yeah. Because the lives and prior professional careers of these people are going to be known to everyone in public sentiment matters. And Alan Dershowitz now is saying, you know, very stridently that you have to have a crime you know, the violation of a crime or criminal statute in order for there to be an impeachable offense. Whereas back in the Clinton time, he's on tape saying that it doesn't have to be a technical crime. If you have somebody who completely corrupts the office of president and who abuses trust and who poses great danger to our liberty, you don't need a technical crime. Mm -hmm. And you know why he said that? 
because it's actually the truth, right? And and we should go through this. He was this. right the first time. They're making, right, he was right the first time. And there is broad consensus among legal scholars, constitutional professors, lawyers, that his initial position, which is that it doesn't have to be the crime, is the truth. And there's some great writing by Frank Bowman on this. There's some great back and forth on folks who basically say, look, if you look at the history of what was happening at the time of the Constitutional Convention, if you look at the history of English common law, it's very clear that, number one, they knew that they hadn't established all the crimes in the United States yet, that they were going to have statutory crimes and that they hadn't established them. But number two, that high crimes and misdemeanors would be defined by the House representatives and that it didn't have to be a crime. And in fact, at the time that of the Constitutional Convention, Bowman writes, I think very and others have now written pretty compellingly that there was an abuse of power impeachment trial happening in England at the very time that the Constitutional Convention is going on, and that it's one of the reasons that they didn't just write bribery and treason into the Constitution, that they wrote high crimes and misdemeanors. So there's no question. I I think, you know, people should understand if we're talking about, like, what percentage of legal scholars think that it doesn't need to be a crime, it's like... I, I, 95, 90, like there's generally very large consensus. And you could find folks who disagree, but there are not many. And there's no... It's like climate change. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But there are a couple other points. One, you know, people keep talking about the precedents that have existed in prior trials. Now, precedents are important, but the more precedents that there are, the more powerful and compelling and persuasive they can be. Now here, with respect to presidential impeachment trials, there's been one in 152 years. Right. That was Bill Clinton's, right? The last one was in 1868, and now you have this one. So I understand people saying, in no time in history has there ever been X or Y. And by the way, the Democrats are doing it also, saying this is the first impeachment mm-hmm. ever. It's an important argument, but it's not all powerful because there are so They're few, not, so few yes. presidents. Now you look at the language the founders used, talking about the kinds of things they were afraid of. It turns out this is the first president who has violated the trust that the founders said that they wanted in a president, and that is entwining yourself in foreign influence. The other impeachments have been about domestic issues, not about the central concern of what the founders had with respect to to presidents being brought under the influence of and trying to influence foreign governments in a way that they thought would impinge on the neutrality and independence of the American president. That's what's happened here. And the fact that there's no precedent for it in an impeachment trial of a president doesn't necessarily cut in the president's favor. It's worth noting, it relates to an election, which was another great fear of the of the framers of the Constitution, that there'd be election interference. One other point a couple of folks have made is that Article 1 of the Articles of Impeachment really does also set out a crime of bribery and basically does really stipulate the elements that you would prove to prove a crime of bribery. Now, I think, again, I think the House was right to be broader and basically say, look, this is an abuse of power. Because really, at the end of the day, what we're talking about is the corruption is corruption engaged in by the president of the United States to use his influence as the president to turn the wheels of the United States government to get them to do his bidding so he can win an election. And that's really important. So let me ask you this question then, because I think you're right. And the argument is that the articles of impeachment were written broadly and subsume within them these crimes. But Alan Dershowitz argues, and I think maybe Ken Starr and others have argued or would argue, that then you have to actually state a crime in the Articles of Impeachment. It's not enough. I mean, I've seen Dershowitz say this multiple times it's on television. It's just true, yeah. That, well, look, if they thought it was a crime, yeah. they should have, as, as lawyers say, they should have pled it as a crime look, and articulated it as a crime. And having not done that, it doesn't rise to the level of being an impeachable offense. We have to be honest, and I think all of our listeners and everyone has to be very clear that impeachment is a political process. Just as 
it is incredibly frustrating to me the way that the Senate has written the resolution for how the trial will be conducted. I don't even think it's a trial anymore, frankly, but like the Senate gets to do that under the authority of the United States Constitution because they've been given the sole authority to try an impeachment. The House of Representatives has been given the sole authority to decide whether or not to impeach a president and whether or not the president's conduct is a high crime and misdemeanor. And so those arguments, they're totally false. Dershowitz, you know, who styles himself as a constitutional professor and scholar, knows they're wrong. And I sort of feel like here's the real problem. And you and I have tried cases where we see people do this all the time. Someone makes an argument that on its face almost makes sense, right? Well, you can't do that. It has to be a crime. And a lot of people sitting at home think, well, I wouldn't want to be on trial if I didn't commit a crime. Like, how would I know what I was guilty of, right? Like, there's a sort of superficial level but when you take the no argument, no one's going to jail either. Yeah, exactly. well, that's true too, and really important. But when you take it, when you sort of push forward, push to the next steps of the argument, it's clear it's completely false. It's never been the way it works in the United States. But they're going for that superficial appeal that will give the base an argument. I was thinking last night. I don't think this is right, but I was reading the trial brief by the Republicans, and I was trying to think like, what is this like? Because on the surface, the arguments aren't. I know they're wrong and you know they're wrong. They're not as crazy as some of the prior arguments. Yeah. And some of them, you could see people being like, well, you know, a high crime and misdemeanor, that must mean a crime. But I was thinking about those chocolates you eat at Christmas where you open up that big box. Are they shaped like penguins? (laughs) I wish they were. (laughs) Um, Where you open up that big box, especially when you're a kid, you're like, you pick one and on the surface it looks great and you bite into it and it's that disgusting cherry inside and you're like, that's gross. It's horrible. And the whole thing is horrible. But at the first moment you see it on the surface... You don't quite see how bad it is. Just let the record be clear that Ann Milgram on this program has compared the president's impeachment strategy to a box of chocolates. No, I've compared Alan Dershowitz (laughs) to one of those gross cherry-filled chocolates that are, you know, superficially, you can see why people would be drawn to it, but then deep down, it's not good. In fairness to Alan Dershowitz, he, unlike some others, does seem to care that he's been caught in some hypocrisy based on what he said in 1998 versus what he said now. And so he's trying to harmonize what he said 20 years ago with what he said more recently by saying, I think he's adopted new terminology. He's not saying now (laughs) it has to be a crime, but it has to be crime-like. Did you you see that? Could you imagine if you were walked into a grand jury and said, ladies and gentlemen of the grand jury, I'd like for you to consider a few crime-like offenses. Yeah, crime-ish. Crime-ish. So we have the White House counsel folks. We have these outside people like Alan Dershowitz and others. The third category, uh, who I thought were being thrown to the side. Yeah, me too. Were the the house guys. They're back. And they're almost all guys, but not all guys, who I thought were really trying to lobby to be on the defense team to be on the floor of the Senate. And all the reporting was that Mitch McConnell and others wanted it to be a, you know, a sober proceeding and not turn into a circus. So people like Matt Gates and Doug Collins and Jim Jordan and yes. those were not given roles in the Senate trial. But then there was a press release, I think, yesterday or the day before announcing that a bunch of these folks are on the team. Now, I don't know what that means. It doesn't look like they're going to have a role on the Senate floor, but it seems like it's a little bit of a a sop to them. You're on the team and we're giving you some role. You know, in some ways, I I sort of felt like this was just a little bit of, I don't know, giving them a little bit of stature and they're obviously going to be working the media. It's like the Cub Scouts trophy, like everyone (laughs) everyone wins. Yeah, well, they're going to... Here's your certificate. it, It was clear to me that the best role for them anyway was being the talking heads on yep. TV and going out and playing the media strategy. And that's what the president wants is for people to scream at the top of their lungs in his defense on national TV. And so in some ways, it doesn't really matter what you call them. And so they've given them this little title that, I don't know, maybe they put it all on their congressional resume and say, 
they were part of the congressional residents of Beachman. Look, it, it might help them in re-election. They can tout right. the role that they had in supporting the president of the United States in the districts that they're in. And it might be helpful politically. So, you know, more power to them. But I don't think it's a significant change in the strategy. And I also don't think that they're running the legal strategy at all. Do you worry at all? Worry is not the right word, but the House picks the managers. And so they pick from their group. And there are litigators and there are some strong folks there. But then you look, the Republicans, the president and his defense can pick anyone in the United States. He's not limited to members of Congress. Did you get a call? I did not get a call. Did you get a call? No, I did not. (laughs) <laughs> but they don't, they don't have outsiders. Well, you mean by the president? The president did not call me. No. But I do get weirdly fundraising letters from him. I'll bring one in. It's so weird. I know. My husband's always like, is there something you should tell me? <laughs> and he hands me the envelope. Maybe you should make a disclosure on, <laughs> yeah, this, on, this, I promise. on this program. Um, I, have not, I have not contributed. But the it, it is sort of an interesting question. Like the House is using their members. And I think that there will be many strong ones. And obviously there are people with some litigation experience. But they don't have a constitutional scholar, right? And you've now got Dershowitz on the constitutional side. It's, it, I don't know. Do you think it's an imbalance or do you think it doesn't matter? I think the House team is very strong. I think... Back during the Clinton impeachment, Bill Clinton hired as outside counsel really, really strong. Yeah, great lawyers. You know, some of whom were well-known, some of whom were not so well-known. Really, really strong private lawyers. And this time around, I don't have, not to disparage anyone, but I don't have the same view of the sort of pure intellectual competence of the outside lawyers that the president has chosen. He's chosen people who may be well-known, who have some baggage, who would be good on Fox News. He was not choosing the best trial lawyers in America to defend himself. Yeah. Can I say one more thing on Dershowitz just to not let this go? But he wanted to be one of the constitutional scholars in the House Judiciary Committee hearings. And the House didn't let him and they didn't let him because there are allegations that are pending right now. There's litigation. He's been sued by women who say that he sexually assaulted them related to Jeffrey Epstein. It's just an interesting note that the House basically said, no, we're not going to have you on. We think that there are issues surrounding you personally, they declined to let him be one of the Republican constitutional lawyers, but the president has hired him. Let me ask you about that. So we've had now a 15-minute discussion about the president's team, and we did not lead with the thing that every news anchor did when the announcement was made. And that is, because it's sensational, the first thing we heard people say was, wow, look at who Donald Trump picked. He picked a number of lawyers who represented Jeffrey Epstein, one of the most sensational cases around. Is that fair to talk about these lawyers as having that connection? I'll tell you, I think what you and I just did is the more important thing, which is to talk about their legal ability. What I think is interesting is that Dershowitz has played it like, oh, I I didn't want to do this. The president had to come after me. But it's been pretty clearly reported that he was eager to be as one of the Republican members of the House Judiciary Committee hearing. And so I first of all think it's not credible to say that he hasn't wanted to be involved in it. I also just think, you know, it's an interesting question of what role that should play. He hasn't been convicted of a crime. There's pending civil litigation. The president absolutely can pick him. He hasn't been disbarred as a lawyer. Um, and I think it's it's that conversation is secondary probably to the first conversation about his legal ability. But I do think it's a fair point to make that the president has picked folks who have been embattled on issues of harassment. They have represented people and look, private lawyers, they're not their clients, but right. some of these folks have represented folks for a long time. And, and particularly when you look at Starr and Dershowitz, the relation to the first case in which they got a sweetheart deal and Epstein went on to abuse other young women. Yeah. And so I think there's a it's fair odd, issue to raise. It's just an odd thing. But again, the president displays this penchant in other contexts also, that all things being equal, find a lawyer that's equally good. That doesn't, who doesn't have baggage. Have the, who doesn't yes. have the baggage. And they can't be, it just makes it so easy for members of the public, again, whether it's fair or not, and I think it, it, there are parts of it that are fair, but put that aside for a moment. It allows everyone on television every day 
to show clips of Dershowitz saying the opposite of what he said, to show clips every day of Ken Starr saying the opposite of what he said, dredging up old memories of how they mistreated witnesses and how they're total hypocrites now, that obscures the message. And part of that maybe doesn't matter because most of the defense here has not been on the merits, has not been on the facts has been on process and on other things. And so maybe it doesn't matter to the president. You know, the other thing, I mean, I assume these guys are not being paid for defending the president. I actually don't know. Maybe they are. Doesn't matter. Even if there's a bill, it will, it will never get will paid. be honored. But, you know, one thing I was thinking is it sort of also, also shows the conversation about Jeffrey Epstein sort of shows like they'll defend anyone. They're hired guns. And, you know, it happens to be consistent with their current political philosophies or whatnot. But it's... Right. Well, there's an argument that that's what's noble about the law, that you defend anyone. And Alan Dershowitz... You know, I've known him a long time. I didn't go to Harvard Law School, but I took a class my senior year in college that he and another couple of professors taught. And it was, it's was it been a point of pride, and he had a different reputation back then, a point of pride that I will represent anyone in, the, in a First Amendment case, whether I agree or disagree with yeah. their views. And there are limits to this principle, but the idea that, you know, a lawyer will defend a client because everyone deserves representation yeah. and they'll do it to the best of their ability zealously, even if they find the views of the client or the conduct of the client to be an abomination, that's a little bit of how our legal system works. Yeah, sure. And everybody deserves a good lawyer. Those are the three categories. You say there was a fourth category? Well, I was separating the White House, the folks who are actually going to speak, the folks that have been hired by the president, the Ken Starr and Alan Dershowitz. I was separating them from Pam Bondi, Jane Raskin, some of the other lawyers who are going to be more behind the scenes. And they may, may or may not have speaking roles, but they're not sort of the lead arguers um, on the president's behalf. So I was sort of separating the private lawyers into two buckets, but I, I see why you would have made them one. You know, I also have another point to make about this. Um, there's too many damn lawyers. There's a lot of lawyers. You know, I'm a lawyer, you're a lawyer, I like lawyers, but think about the teams that you put together. And I get that this is a big deal and it's the presidency, but you know the record is actually not that extensive. You know, the entire set of proceedings and facts known and witnesses who have been talked to and about whom there are statements, with respect to whom there are statements and depositions and everything else, it's kind of like a run-of-the-mill record as far as trials that you and I have had experience with. In part because they don't have also all the Correct. documents and other <clears throat> evidence ta- they should I'm have. I'm just talking yes. about, you know, how do you staff something like that? Yeah. You staff it with like three lawyers, max. How long do you think if this was a real trial, and we know it's not... Real trials have, they have evidence, they have facts, they have witnesses. This is different. But if this were a real trial in a criminal court, again, I know it's not, but how long do you think this would take for the for the house managers to put on their case and how long do you think the defense would go? Yeah, I, I think like a month. I mean, you know, And how much of that time would be the government to, and how much would be the defense? Well, I would say a month for the, for the direct case. Yep, and the then, government. And then maybe yep. there would be no defense case. Because remember, if in a normal case... You don't have to call every... If you have access to all the witnesses, you don't have to call. Maybe, maybe you call Bolton and you don't need to call the three other people who corroborate Bolton. Maybe you call one of them. Yeah. Assuming you have access to everyone. I would call one or two because I think that's important. But, but you're right. You might not have call so, five. They have yeah. so many lawyers. I'm not sure what they're there for. I think on the House side, on the House manager side, you, you have a small group. I think they have small staffs. Seven is a bit much also, but I think there are political reasons why you need to have a Do broad group. you know why I don't group. think it's that much? Because I think... There's two reasons. One is not all the members on the House side have been involved in the matter the whole time. And so there are a lot of facts to learn. There are a lot of witnesses. And my guess is that Schiff has divided it into parts and saying, you're going to be part of Article 1, you're going to be part of Article 2. Just And, and that may be wrong, but that there's going to have to be some organizing principle, particularly for folks who don't know the evidence as well as someone like he or Nadler does. The second piece is that the schedule that McConnell has put them on, and we'll talk about that in a second, McConnell is trying to, it's a, it's not a marathon, it's a sprint. Right. And so that 
that's when it helps to have extra lawyers because you have different sets of eyes and you have people who are able to, you know, one person's talking, the other is taking notes. And so it, I don't think seven is a crazy number. Maybe that's right. But I also think there are political reasons why you need to have a larger group. You just can't have like the two white men. But in a case of this nature, your team needs to be the type that everyone is well-versed in all the facts and to understand how this part of the case works with respect to OMB you have to understand what the call was about. And you also have to understand the campaign against Ambassador Yovanovitch. Like it all, yeah. it all fits together. And, and you someone have to know has to understand all. the constitutional arguments. Yeah. So, and, and meanwhile, I think, look, Adam Schiff is running the show. Adam Schiff will have the main speaking parts, I presume. He will assign some things to others. It's sort of like when you have a trial of more people, your junior person, you give them a speaking role, you give them the expert yes. witness, you give them something so that they can come along as well, not to denigrate anyone on the House. But Adam Schiff, more than any other member there, has lived and breathed the facts and has actually been the one putting questions to these people, it's a very different thing. If you're the one who went to the grand jury and investigated the case, I mean, this happens all the time, right? You have a lawyer who investigates the case, and sometimes it's maybe one or two prosecutors, and then you go to trial in the case and you add a couple of trial guns. Yeah. They just don't know the case as well as the people Yeah, look, I've done this. And, right? and the bottom line is you read every every shred of evidence, you read every document, you read every grand jury, you probably meet with a number of witnesses before trial, but you're still not in the initial conversations that could have gone on with witnesses for two weeks. You're not going to know everything that the lead lawyers know. Right. So, so now let's talk about what you just mentioned, Mitch McConnell's resolution, yes. which sets the sort of the timing and some of the rules for how this will unfold. That was released yesterday, yeah. Monday, and will be voted on maybe by the time people listen to this, maybe without amendment, maybe with amendment. It seems like he has the votes to get this thing through. A couple of questions I have for you, and then we'll go over what it says. Do you see how large a role is being given to Chief Justice Roberts in this, <laughs> in this resolution? I read like it twice. Zero? I, yeah. The, the, um, as little as they possibly can. Before we get to what the particulars are, yep. you read it. It's pretty short, like three and a half pages. Yeah, four pages. It yep. is all about what the Senate decides, what the Senate does, how the Senate votes, how they decide you said about this evidence and everything else. There yeah. is no, n- not even a perfunctory mention. None. Yep. of Justice Roberts anywhere in this resolution. was that, that was striking to me. I think it was intentional also. And I wonder if they have inside information from the court or people who are close to the court who are saying exactly what you said last week, which is Justice Roberts isn't going to want to make a ruling that the Senate then overrules and he's not going to want to be out there. And so he's going to push things to the Senate. And obviously the Senate Republicans are in the majority to McConnell to sort of work through. McConnell's saying here, basically, that's exactly what he wants to happen. And so, you know, there is a huge difference, and we should talk about this. McConnell had said, well, we're going to run the trial like they ran the Clinton impeachment. That's actually not true when you read the resolution in in countless ways that are very important. I mean, we'll just do a couple of quick examples. One is the timing, how long the folks will have to present the initial case. In Clinton, it was each side had three days to present evidence here. The sides will have 24 hours split over two days. So 12 hours one day, 12 hours the next. That's really fast. Another way in which it's different is that in the Clinton matter, the Senate took the full record from the investigation. And here, what McConnell has said is, yeah, every senator can have a copy of it, but that record is not coming into evidence. And so you're essentially having a trial with zero evidence that has been admitted. That is really striking. There's another piece, which is that instead of doing what they did in Clinton, which is they had the initial arguments and such, and then they raised this question of whether or not they would allow for witnesses. Here, what McConnell has done is said, we're going to have the initial arguments, these sort of each side gets 24 hours split over two days each. So that's four days. Then we'll have questions 
questions that can be asked and answered. And so each side will ask questions of one another. Then we'll do this uh, debate for four hours, I believe, over whether or not there should be witnesses and documents. And they're going to have one large super vote on that, not on individual documents or, for example, not a resolution about getting access to the State Department documents or getting John Bolton to testify. It will be a package deal, which I think is intentional by McConnell to strategically try to protect individual members. And we can talk about why that is. If that succeeds, they would then go on to talk about who the individual people are that they want to have as witnesses. Then they would depose them, which is what you do in civil cases, not in criminal cases. And after they depose them, the Senate would again vote to decide whether or not to have them testify completely different from Clinton on witnesses and documents done in a way that I think guarantees or at least tries to guarantee that John Bolton will not testify. And we can talk a little bit further about that. But they're really, really significant differences of how this resolution is done from the Clinton resolution. Um, And again, I sort of agree with you. I don't think McConnell would put it up unless he had the votes. He's a power player. This is all about... Well, the senators can change their minds and depending on on how it unfolds. The four senators should change their minds because this is it is a mockery of a Senate trial, um, in my view. I don't know how. What was your reaction yeah, to the look, resolution? My reaction to the to the resolution is one of no surprise that the way this is being run is based on what power Mitch McConnell thinks he has. In some ways, it superficially looks like it tracks the Clinton impeachment. But I'll say again, to be consistent, that's one precedent in the last hundred and fifty-two years. And I'm not you know if we're back here again in a few years that everything has to be done the exact same way that was done before. I think what's most important is that the process be fair and be seen to be fair uh, and open-minded. Do you think and this I think is this fair? Is, this is not that. But, yeah. but this idea, I mean, I, I'm just a little reluctant to take the position because I don't want to be contradicted in the future that just because the Clinton impeachment was done a particular way that one time in 152 years that everything needs to be done the same way as if that particular group of senators was perfect in some way. I don't think so. I totally agree with that. I think the issue here is more that McConnell came out and said, this is going to be like the Clinton impeachment. And then you look at the resolution and it is nothing like the Clinton impeachment. You're right. Superficially, there are a couple pieces that seem to track. And I promise you, he sold those four senators as a, this was done before, yeah, and, and it a face save, It's a face-saving yeah. thing for them. Can I make one comment about, and maybe this is, a, this is a contrarian position also. So there has been a lot of complaining on television about how little time each side has to make its, I guess, opening, people keep calling it opening arguments, and usually in a trial it's not called an opening argument. You're not allowed to argue it in the opening. It's an opening statement. This is different, and right, I guess yeah. they will be making arguments, so I guess you can call it an opening argument. 24 hours over two days. That's 12 hours a day. 24 hours is a lot of time. And I've seen, I was, I was heartened to see uh, one of my former colleagues, Chuck Rosenberg, say the same thing on television. On what planet do you really need 24 hours to set forth the case against the president of the United States? Instead of complaining that 24 hours is not enough and that by the time you're, you reach the 12th hour on day one, it'll be late at night, do it in three hours. Do it in four. And in fact, I cannot recall... Any trial that I oversaw where the case and the facts and the witnesses were more complicated and more numerous, where the summation went anywhere close to four trial days, which is what, you know, essentially 24 hours would be. You do it in half a day. At the most, you do it in a little bit more than half a day. You can do it sharply, crisply. Look, we saw Adam Schiff do it. But there's Uh, a huge difference here. And we should just be honest about what that huge difference is, which is that... 
when you gave an opening or closing or I gave an opening or closing, there was something happened that happened between those two things, which were facts and witnesses and evidence that came in. And that, as of right now, does not really exist, right? And so... Yeah, but you still have... But you, you have, have some record. The, the record exists. And the, the record, record is not ex- going to be expanded. But it's not admitted yet. Right, but, but that record is not going to be expanded between now and next week. And so given what the record is, all you can do is argue from the record at the moment. And that record is fairly limited. You have, all, you have these 12 or 13 witnesses in the house. You have the legal arguments that you make. You have public statements and documents. That, I mean, I guarantee you, you could give a brilliant presentation on behalf of the house managers in oh, the Senate <laughs> for in, in 120 minutes yeah. with I, slides and everything look, else. My and people was, would applaud you. My view is generally two hours, right? That like if you got beyond two hours, it had to be a super complicated case and that most cases should be 30 to 60 minutes for openings and closings. That's generally my view. Also, people just don't have the attention span. But here's a difference. This really is, this is going to be questions, they can't control the narrative, right? They're, they can control the questions they're asking, but they're written questions that are going to... But that's later. That's, that's after later, the 24 hours. I'm just talking about, on I these know, 24 hours, I feel very strongly. But let's take it as a package. Yeah. And let's take let's think about what this package is. What you and I are used to is a package where you're opening on what is the evidence going to show you. You then have the evidence come in. You have documents, you have witnesses. You then close on, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, here's what we have proven to you during the past four weeks of our trial that we've just been through. This witness told you this, this proves this element of the crime. That's not happening here. What's happening here is 24 hours of, quote, arguments, right? Sort of strange. It, it is all a strange construct. And then these sort of weird back and forth of written questions that are going to go to the chief justice and then go to each side to be answered. And so what I think is happening is this idea of, well, and let me actually step back one one piece further, which is here's where I have a problem with all of this, which is that the responsibility falls on the house managers to make the case. They bear the burden, and it's not the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. We've talked about this. It's not It's not defined, and the president isn't going to jail or prison. And if anything, that mitigates in favor of, but the president could be removed from office. So let's say even the burden is the burden of re- beyond reasonable doubt. What becomes really important is they need to make their case, and they're making their case not just to the other senators, but also to the American public. And to me, when you, it's your job to prove a case, you got to decide, did you call one week of witnesses or three? You get to marshal the facts and evidence you need to to prove your case. And here, what McConnell has done is, I think you're right about the power play. I think he does have the authority. But it's almost like with Merrick Garland, where you sort of gain the power and then you change the rules so that you win. And we should be really honest here of this isn't about a fair and thorough vetting of this question, whether the president should be removed. This is about how do we cabin the rules of the Senate and the actual House managers in a way that makes sure that none of the facts and evidence come in and that we win. No, I agree with all that. I'm making a limited point, both in terms of what is necessary and also what is compelling. They should get up there. They should do it in four hours. People would applaud and be very impressed. And they can do it in prime. Like part of this whole debate and they, the argument... And they should do it in prime time. I agree that with that. They're yeah. starting at 1 p.m. and that everyone thinks that they're required. I mean, look, lawyers have this pension also. I think less in prosecutors' offices. If the page limit for a brief is 50 pages, everyone writes 50 pages. Right. If it's 25 pages, they write 25 I pages. I don't. I don't. If the judge says you have four hours to sum up, they do three yeah. hours and 59 minutes. No, I agree use with less. you on that. I agree. And actually, the, the truth is you should use the amount of time that you need and 
my point is, I think that this is all about cabining their ability to make the case that they need to make. Also, there's a little bit of a false equivalency here, which is you and I just went through, okay, this would take four weeks probably for the government to put their evidence in. If there's a defense case, maybe it's three days, maybe it's a week. I don't think it's more than that. So Max, this is a five-week case. The government would spend four weeks putting on their case. The defense would put one week in. Here, every side gets 24 hours, right? So it's a little of the the fact that there's a different burden or different role that each side plays at a trial is washed away, but on its face, it looks fair. So here's the other, so there are a lot of weird things. The word weird is the operative drinking word for today, I think, on, I, the, on the podcast. I want to argue it's chilling, but we can come back to that. Okay, we can come back yeah. to that. Here's what's bizarre, and that I don't know how this is going to play out, but because we had an abbreviated proceeding in the House, and because not all the subpoenas were litigated, there are all sorts of other things that are going to be coming out parallel with the trial in the Senate. And so, you know, someone quipped interestingly about Lev Parnas or Lev Parnas, who's the Rudy Giuliani associate, who's been indicted by the Southern District of New York on campaign finance violations. And someone, I forgot who it was, someone quipped, it's so interesting for the Senate to take testimony by cable television appearance. (laughs) (laughs) So, So Lev Parnas... Is that how been, you say his name? I never so, know. So there has been this discussion about it. Okay. And apparently it is Parnas. Okay, Parnas. But most people assumed it was Parnas. Yeah. And when we get to this other, not to get too deep in the weeds, we get to this other issue of what Devin Nunes knew, House member, ranking member on the Intelligence Committee. Who said he never, he said he never met Lev yes, Parnas. Doesn't recall having any phone conversation And then all of a sudden, him. oh, hey, oh, now I remember. Well, somebody has sleuthed this as follows and said, well, Devin Nunes, back when he was asked about Lev, uniquely understood that his name was pronounced Parnas <laughs> as if he must have met the guy. And so I, I don't credit that theory at all necessarily, yeah. but is this So he misunderstood. Sort of, that's what I've been the reading up was, about the, about the huh. pronunciation. So he's been, he was on Rachel Maddow. He was on Anderson Cooper. His Lev lawyers, Parnas. Lev Parnas. Yes, not ma- Devin Nunes. Made a lot of statements that bear on the question of what was happening with Ambassador Yovanovitch and everything else. We'll come back to those particulars in a moment, but you also have John Bolton, Saying he may testify? Like, you never know. He could decide to appear on a television program. Probably not. What is your view on what happens at the trial if separate from the trial in the news, you have facts yeah. coming out yeah. that bear, you know, directly on the question at issue in the trial? It's a great question. First of all, I think I want to just be clear that my position is it's not a trial if you don't have facts and witnesses. And so I, I really, the resolution and the fact that they didn't even take the House record and they're arguing, well, there wasn't due process for the president in the House proceeding and that's why they're not adopting the record. So what are you going to call it? So we, it, should we have a name for it? Yeah, what should square, we name it? Square Dance? <laughs> <laughs> we, night at we the should aquarium? have a Twitter competition to, like, so to name this, the this tri- Senate, trial. This trial. Senate night at the aquarium, yes. as it is. What will be happening? So you're right. There's a there's a media aspect to this, and it is. It feels to me like as part of their trial brief, they are talking about the Parnas stuff, right? And so the house managers, and so there's a a very strange thing happening. It's almost like parallel tracks in some ways of one official proceeding and one unofficial proceeding. There is this sort of indication that things are, that are public can be sort of argued by the House managers and by the Republican lawyers. What's a little bit strange is that one of the challenges with the Parnas piece is that there has not been any real vetting of it yet. And so whereas the House did depositions, there were questions raised by both House Democrats and Republicans of witnesses in front of both behind closed doors and then publicly in front of open committee, Parnas just comes forward and says, I'm going to go on Maddow. I'm going to go on Anderson Cooper. A lot of times witnesses control the questions that they can be asked when they go on those shows. I have no idea if he did that, but you know, he's 
under indictment from the Southern District for campaign finance. And so there's a lot of reasons to want a more thorough investigation of his claims. All that being said, the written text messages are pretty compelling that they're... So we should go back and just... Dis- yeah, and dis- let's go back and talk so, about So there's that. a back and forth between Lev Parnas and others, including this guy named Robert Hyde, who, as I mentioned in the Stay Tuned podcast, is running for Congress in Connecticut. And at least until a couple of days ago, uh, the banner on his Twitter feed that said Hyde for Congress, spelled Congress, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S-S. Oh, yes. No, it's the three S Congress. Congress. <laughs> it's like, it's an extra sibilant yeah. S in yeah. Congress, who has, has admitted that he was drinking. Lev Parnas went on television and said, I'd never seen the guy not drunk. And he's done a lot of sort of wacky things. I don't put a lot of money on his ability to win in the in the House race. But it looked like they were in real time, or at least Hyde was in real time, stalking the physical whereabouts of Yovanovitch yeah. in kind of a creepy way. And there are a lot of texts or WhatsApps back and forth about that. And it's very specific of she doesn't have her TV on or her comp- she's not on her phone or her computer. So it looked like somebody had electronic surveillance or potential electronic surveillance. She's inside. So a lot of information about right. whereabouts. But he says. Yes. He says, I'm drunk. I was making it up. And I was getting it from other people or some other guy. Right. I was getting that it, from. It's much it more likely joke. that, well, the problem with the joke argument in my mind is that there's too much volume of it. If there was one time where someone says like, oh yeah, I just saw her. She went inside or yeah, I've got eyes on her. You could write that off. But there are series, a repeated series of texts and a lot of information about about her and her whereabouts, who her protection is, whether or not she's getting additional security. So it probably does come from someone on the ground in Ukraine, but there's information being passed about, whether it's credible or not, it appears like they were tracking a U.S. ambassador. And it is really disturbing to see that. And again, it has to be investigated. And I don't want to prejudge it, but it, there's enough there to basically for me to believe that it was just a joke or just a right. drunken thing. I don't buy that. And let's unpack a little bit what's going on with Lev. To me, and other people have said this also, he's like Michael Cohen 2.0. Yes. In, in, in a lot of different ways. One, he's kind of an unseemly character in some ways. Two, He's been charged with a federal crime. Three. Three, he's been charged by SDNY. Four, SDNY, I have no inside knowledge, but SDNY seems not to want to engage in a cooperation agreement with Lev Parnas in the same way they didn't with Michael Cohen. And now- Can I add five yeah, on? Yeah. Five is that worshipped Donald Trump, and then <laughs> right. Trump cut him loose, right? It's yeah. the exact same thing that happened with Cohen. Cohen was a faithful lieutenant. Lev Parnas, in one of the interviews, talked about one of the FBI agents when they came to his house was making fun of this, the shrine that he had to Donald Trump. Right. He was all in. Both these guys were all in. And then when word comes out, Trump basically says, who is that guy? Who is that guy? And well, now a lot of people. The, Pence, too. Like he's, he, that, that guy has a picture with everybody. Everybody. And multiple pictures, not just one. And I've so, looked for one with you. I haven't found one. No, yet. no. There's no... There, <laughs> there's, there, you will not find that. You will not find I that. I assume of you, too. So he's a guy who is trying to get some leniency. And he's out talking. And the sense I get is that you should view what he says with some skepticism because he's got baggage, because he's under indictment, he's trying to protect himself. But there's a lot of stuff that's corroborated. So you have text messages and you have other information he's trying to get out. The lawyer has said this is a tiny fraction of what Lev Parnas has and that maybe he can get some benefit from a judge later. But there's clearly some issue with the Southern District that they don't believe his whole story or they think he's selective in what he wants to cooperate on or any one of a thousand reasons why they might not want to sign him up. 
as a formal cooperator. And, and there are a lot of reasons why to be a formal cooperator, you've got to be 100% truthful. You've got to talk about everything you've done. And other and, people. And other people. And they may have decided, look, they don't need to make the deal. One of the things that Lev also gives is that letter that Giuliani sent to Vladimir Zelensky, the newly elected president of Ukraine, where Giuliani says, I represent Trump, President Trump personally. This is very normal in the United States. Nothing could be further from the truth, right? It's like... But he also says, I, and I'm reaching out to you with the permission and consent of the president yes, of the United States. Yes, which is really important. And so I actually think that there is some evidence that Lev has put out, the text messages, that letter, the Nunes piece. There are some pieces of this that are really important as part of the impeachment conversation. There's also something that happened, though, that I would just note, which is he's very conclusory when he gives these interviews. And I wanted, and I think the journalists were eager to get that scoop and they didn't always ask, well, why do you think Pence was involved? What evidence do you right. have? Like, when did you see him? What did you see? What did Giuliani tell you? I agree with you. There was just like, you know, I don't know if you had this moment of watching the interviews, but it's like, yeah, maybe his conclusions are right and maybe they aren't, but you have to push on them and test them. And there was really not enough of that. With respect to Trump, what Lev Parnas has to say is not quite looking at it from a lawyer's lens, not quite as devastating as a lot of anti-Trump people hope that it is because he didn't have direct conversations with the president. He says, you know, in this way, he echoes Ambassador Gordon Sondland. Remember that guy who said repeatedly during his testimony, everyone knew, everyone was in the loop, everyone understood, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I think that's a reasonable conclusion. I think it's clearly the case. But you want to know what facts that conclusion yeah, the is based on. the president care about politics. But when Lev Parnas says... Yeah, I really didn't talk to the president. You know who I did talk to every day, Giuliani. all day long? Rudy Giuliani. Yes. And so that's the link, right? What did Lev Parnas say to Giuliani? And then what did Giuliani say to the president? I have every reason to believe, based on common sense and having lived in the world and knowing what a blabbermouth Giuliani is, that he told the president these things. Now, maybe that gets shielded by attorney-client privilege. It's also just another sidelight. The, the one lawyer we didn't talk about, <laughs> we talked about the president's team was Mr. Rudolph Giuliani. Yes, not selected. Who has wanted to be on the team. Yes. There are many reasons why you and I would, remember last week? We would please, never put please, him on, yes. Please be on, I mean, just as an enjoyer of entertainment, it would be interesting to have him on the team. But he's also a direct fact witness more than anyone else among the potential lawyers because of his involvement with Lev Parnas and the things he said to the president. So I agree with you. For Lev Parnas to be a devastating witness against the president, you need to know with much greater particularity how he has a basis for knowing what was in the president's mind. Yeah, when he comes on Stay Tuned, you should invite him on Stay Tuned. I'd like you to ask him all those <laughs> questions. I wonder if he'd come. So in response to all of this, there have been a flurry of briefs filed of um, varying quality. Yes. What did you make of the president's brief, most recent one? So it's a long brief, and basically I think there are a few arguments in it. One is the argument we talked about before that Dershowitz is now making, which is it has to be a crime for the president to be impeached. I don't credit that at all. The second, and I think more of the heart of the brief, is that it's akin to the Mick Mulvaney, get over it. And I have news for everybody. Get over it. There's going to be political influence in foreign policy. And it's a little bit of the also the president could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not be guilty. It is that the president has vast authority. It is an incredible assertion that the president has really sole authority over foreign policy and that everything he did... It's the perfect call. It's the president. This was a perfect call. Everything I did, I could do. And there's a lot of ways in which that argument is being made. It fails to me for so many reasons. If you accepted that argument, you would basically accept that the president can neither be indicted for committing a crime or ever impeached for that the president's power is beyond that of Congress and the judiciary, that it's not a co-equal branch of government. And it really is an astonishing 
assertion of this absolute authority of the president. It makes him a monarch in many ways. And so I think those arguments, when you read them, it's very aggressively written there. It's like Can I they, ask you about that? Yeah. They didn't have to make such an extreme argument. Do you think they had to make that kind of an argument? Because the facts are so devastating and the only way... And they really to don't argue out, the facts. That's, but the only way to get out of it is the president did these things that were clearly for his personal benefit and that went against national security, although they don't admit that, that they have to take the position that the president can do whatever the hell he wants to justify what he did, right? Yeah. So there are a few reasons why I think they did it. One, their client, the president of the United States, that's his argument. Right. And, and you know, your client <laughs> you matters. He's the right? client. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, the yeah. client. And it was the client, a perfect call. I can do what I want. Exactly. So that's that's the first thing. The second thing is it's classic Trump. There's It's always a bet the farm argument. Like there's no giving of the, well, we could have done it better. This was a mistake of judgment, but it's not impeachable. He doesn't give. And there's an right. argument strategically, politically, that when you give a little, you sort of open the door to get steamrolled. And so he doesn't want to even We've give. We've talked about that. Look, he has taken the position publicly. He's never had to brief it yet. Maybe we'll come to it, that he could pardon himself. So he, the client, takes extreme positions, yes. And then they sort of attack this idea of obstruction of Congress, and they say that's never been used in an impeachment. And I go back to your argument about, well, there's only really <laughs> been, it's less than yeah. one hand. We yeah. could count on less than one hand. And so, and also they they make an argument, and I want to talk about this for one second, because I, I do think that their brief is almost the height of corruption in some ways for the following reason. The argument is, well, of course, we have executive privilege because he's the president of the United States. The executive privilege is, is very strong in foreign and military affairs. And so the president shouldn't have to be able to divulge any of these conversations that he had. And Bill Barr, who runs the Department of Justice, told us that it's okay, right? Like they're they're using their power to bootstrap their arguments, right, right? right? To basically have, well, Barr said it's okay, but of course Barr is their person. And so right. there's this like internal wheel of corruption that again, on its face, some of the arguments seem to make sense, but when you really push on any of them, it can't be right. Presenting their argument in a little bit more moderate light, I guess the nub of it is to what extent does impeachment make sense and was impeachment intended when the president took some, you know, bad action or incompetent action, put corrupt aside for a moment. And, you know, the very dramatic example that Alan Dershowitz has given, which is a law professor is wont to do, which is jarring and actually doesn't help his case with respect to public sentiment, is it would be okay with respect to impeachment if the president of the United States willingly allowed Vladimir Putin to annex Alaska. Right. That would be terrible. That would be horrible. We wouldn't like it. We would want to vote him out of office potentially. But that is not a high crime or misdemeanor. It is mismanagement. It is incompetence. It's all sorts of things. But you cannot impeach a president based on that. Now, I don't tend, I don't happen to agree with that. But well, it depends on why he did it, right? And this is where I think Dershowitz's argument yeah. fails. The problem with Ukraine is that the president did it to corruptly benefit himself to win an election. So he's both interfering with the U.S. election and it inerts his personal benefit. It's not if the president, you know, let Putin take Alaska because he thinks it's the right thing for whatever reason. And there's a policy justification and it's not personally benefiting right. the president. As opposed to he wants to open a Trump exactly, Tower in Moscow. Exactly. And if it's because he wants to open a Trump Tower in Moscow, I don't think he can do it. If it's because he thinks that 
I don't know. It's hard for me to even come up with a legitimate reason why, but let's say he had a legitimate reason why. And one of the great examples of why I think this argument fails, you're right to point this out because I think there's a powerful argument to say, look, there are policy differences and we don't impeach for policy differences. And that is true. And it is the reason why the president of the United States, in my view, has not been impeached for things that he's done that are like separating kids from their parents at the border. If you asked me the thing I most disagree with the president on, it would probably be that. That is not impeachable. That is something legally we can disagree about. The whole heart of Ukraine is about self-dealing. It's not about making a bad policy decision. It's all about corruption. It is not about policy. And one of the interesting things in the president's brief is they really make this argument of the State Department officials, so the GAO, the General Accounting Office, a nonpartisan group in Congress came out last week and said the president violated the law. It was unlawful. They violated the Impoundment Control Act, the ICA, which is the law that says when Congress allocates money for certain purposes, the president can't just take that money or stop it from going out. And we've talked about this before, that the president put nine separate holds on the Ukrainian military aid nine separate times. And what the GAO says is you can't do that. And it's not like you were doing it because there was a legitimate reason. Sometimes we give presidents a little leeway. There was no legitimate reason here. So you come back to when you look at the brief, there's this whole argument of the fact that the Department of Defense was arguing against that. That doesn't matter. The fact that State Department officials were arguing against it, that doesn't matter because the president wants to say, I am the person who makes the foreign policy of the United States. I get to make that whatever I want. And so the issue, I think, is that this is a political process. The House gets to decide what's impeachable. The Senate gets to decide what's removable. But their argument is that the president gets to do what he wants anytime, place, particularly strong with military and foreign affairs. And that, to me, cannot be true. And that has a lot of consequences in the future, depending on, you know, what arguments get made and what kinds of conduct people engage in. Another argument that the president makes is that there's executive privilege. And with respect to the subpoenas that were issued to witnesses and the president's directive that people not cooperate with the Congress, he was merely asserting a well-recognized privilege that other presidents have asserted as well. The counterargument is they've asserted it to a degree that constitutes obstruction and more than anyone else has ever done and in a complete and total universal blanket way. I agree with the people who say the second article of impeachment which is about obstruction of Congress versus the first article, which is about abuse of power. The second article is a little bit weaker on this ground. I agree with that too. And 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 the least weak argument that the president makes is how can it be impeachable to assert what is a recognized privilege that other presidents have enjoyed and claimed also? I think the second article is weaker. I also personally would have subpoenaed Bolton. I would have subpoenaed other witnesses. I would have had a dual track process happening. Now, that being said, executive privilege... It is it is a privilege that the president has to have confidential communications, but it is not absolute. It is a qualified privilege. And there's precedent when it comes to impeachment. This is the ultimate question of whether a president should be removed from office, that all the worries and concerns we have about why presidents need confidential communications, they fall. So impeachment, there's a very strong argument when it comes to impeachment, executive privilege doesn't apply. And even if it did under United States versus Nixon, which is the criminal court case, the subpoena case, the grand jury subpoena case where the court ultimately ruled Nixon had to turn over tapes and information, basically they did a balancing test to figure out whether the privilege should exist in that circumstance. And they found that no, the importance of a criminal case was so high that the president's privilege would have to basically stand down. And so ultimately, if push came to shove, I think executive privilege would not win here. What I do think is important is that, again, on its face, it's a very fair argument to say, how can you go after somebody for asserting a legitimate privilege? 
But they did this sort of blanket, nobody's going to talk to you, we're not going to give you any documents. And as a rule with executive privilege, you have to walk into court and say, because it is a limited privilege, you have to walk into court and say, I can answer these questions, but anything that relates specifically to what the president told me, I'm not going to answer for executive privilege. Then you litigate out back and forth whether that should be privileged in a court of law. So again, on its face, it makes sense when you push on it. I don't think it's legitimate argument, but it's a legitimate argument. It's not a winning argument. It's, it's, <clears throat> it's less weak than the other arguments. Preet, I want to say that there is one example of national unity where both the Democrats and the Republicans totally agree, which is on the use of the word chilling. Because if you read the Democratic <laughs> papers and you read the Republican papers, everyone says what's happening is chilling. They just don't agree what's chilling about They don't mean it. chilling like a villain. Yeah, they don't mean That's that. And they don't mean chilling like penguins are, you know, chilling outside in the cold weather. Chilling effect. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Well, God, God bless the unity that arises from that. Yes. And I'll see you next week, if not sooner. Talk to you soon. Bye. That's it for this week's Insider Podcast. Your hosts are Preet Bharara and Ann Milgram. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tattashore. And the cafe team is Julia Doyle, Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Calvin Lord, Sam Ozer-Staten, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. Thank you for being a part of the Cafe Insider community. <laughs>